If you will, we'll be in the book of Isaiah today. Book of Isaiah. Find your place there, about midway through the Old Testament. As you're turning there, um, my middle daughter, I don't think she's in this. She's not in the room, right? Um, she's Forky today, if you know Forky from, uh, from Toy Story. So, um, But my middle daughter, Reagan, um, I have never seen someone go deeper into a TV trance than this child. Uh, it's amazing, actually, to watch her eyes glaze over and uh, her mind is just gone. It's gone. Um, and she is in TV world. She's an absolute zombie. Um, uh, it's, it's really quite bizarre. We've had friends to pop in to... You know, sip coffee with us, visit, laugh, tell stories, all in the same room. They leave, and she never noticed that they were even there. <laughs> it's remarkable. Um, I say that to say that sometimes she needs to kind of snap out of it, right? To be awoken from this glazed over, uh, lulled to sleep trance. And the truth is, every day, all of us in some way or another are glazed over zombies as well. We've been sucked into a world that's not real. And I, I don't mean it like the way that sounds, but we were lulled into a trance, asleep to the things that are eternally significant and caught up in sort of the, the Hallmark movie of life. Um, I pick on Hallmark movies because my wife loves them, but every time I, I see like five minutes passing through of a Hallmark movie, I think this is the same movie you watched, you know, two days ago. Different characters, different settings, same story, right? Uh, but it somehow sucks us in. The, life is like that. You know, we're, we're told in life what to think about. We're told what to prioritize. We're told what to worry about, what to enjoy, what things should make you happy. The stock market, right? Food supply. Now there's a diesel shortage. The, the flu. Uh, your, your profile picture, your likes and follows and shares and whatnot. The... Your clothes, your house, your cars, fill in the blank. All these things are, are, are pressed on you and impressed into you as to what should be most important in your life. And they, they weigh us down. Truthfully, they blind us. This world is constantly flooding you with, and me, with mind-numbing distractions. With the appearance of importance. Many of them appear important. A lot of it. But truthfully, it's just an echo chamber of foolishness. Same cycle, same story, different characters. Problem is that we are happy consumers. And so this morning, from the book of Isaiah, we get a wake-up call. So just as I would walk in front of my daughter and be like, wake up! That's what God wants to do with us this morning. Some of you just woke up. <laughs> I'm glad. Welcome, welcome. Um, so as you've opened your Bible to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is considered a major prophet, not because he's bigger or better than other prophets, but he, he talked a lot. He wrote a lot, 66 chapters in the book. If you're taking notes, I gave you a little bit there at the, at the top. There are 66 chapters in this book. 
But Isaiah, as I said, as a prophet, the role of a prophet is to speak the words of God, to speak the words of God. A prophet's message and ministry is only validated if it comes true, right? If the things that he prophesies comes true. You know, if you were following some people who said Y2K is the end of the world, you should probably stop following them at this point, right? Um, because it's, we're, you know, 22 years later. Um, Isaiah's ministry was repeatedly affirmed as the things that he prophesied continued to come true to, to some very specific details. He was a prophet for the Lord from about 740 B.C. to about 680. So 50 to 60 years. Um, Isaiah prophesied for the Lord um, among his people. Interestingly enough, this book, 66 chapters, can be divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. In the first part, chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah focuses mainly on impending judgment for Israel's sin. It's a wake-up call. It's judgment and, and for their sin and, and rebellion. And, it, and within those 39 chapters, he gives glimpses of hope of a coming Messiah. The last 27 chapters, 40 through 66, focus mainly on salvation, the, the, the hope of salvation in the Messiah and the new kingdom that he will bring. Now, what I think is really cool, um, and it's really just cool, but is that this is a parallel to the whole Bible, isn't it? The Bible is actually 66 books, right? The first 39 of which are called the what? Old. You guys are awake, kind of. The Old Testament, right? And guess what it focuses on? Judgment of sin, right? Judgment of sin and rebellion and glimpses, shadows of hope of a coming Messiah. The last 27 chapters are called the what? New Testament, and what is its focus? Its focus is on the salvation of the Messiah and the new kingdom he has brought about. So remarkably enough, Isaiah's whole book is kind of a, a snapshot, if you will, of the whole Bible. The first half about judgment, the second half about salvation or hope in a Savior, in a Messiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. In fact, Isaiah 53, chapter 53 that Luke read for us a moment ago is quoted in almost every book of the New Testament. John the Baptist began his sermon, famous sermon in John chapter one with these words. I am the voice of one in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. Right. Direct quote from Isaiah 40. The beginning of what would be the, the new hope-filled part of Isaiah's book. Jesus, when he opened his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he opens the scroll of, can you guess? Isaiah and reads from chapter 61. And he reads about uh, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And he talks about all these miraculous things. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and I have come to bring hope, good news to the poor, right? And then he closes up the scroll. He sits down. You know what he says? This is his sermon. He says, this scripture is fulfilled in me. Jesus is literally saying, I am the Messiah that Isaiah was writing about. The judgment for rebellion 
and the promise of rescue from Isaiah both find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Church, the only way that we can snap out of the trance, Russ mentioned a few weeks ago that, I don't remember how many hours it was, 80 or 90 hours a week that we are inundated with media, social media, news, all kinds of different things that are are clamoring for our attention. How, How are you to snap out of that trance that the world has us in? The only way I believe to snap out is to have clear vision. The only way to have clear vision, to remove the scales, if you will, from your eyes, is to see what is real, what truly matters. The only way for that to happen is to receive a word from outside of this world. That's what a prophecy is. It's a word from another world. We need the words of God to give true sight, to have a real grasp on what is really happening. Now think about it for a moment. That we're, we're, we're pressing in now to uh, prophetic writings, the writings of the prophets. We come to Isaiah, his voice, the, the prophetic voice is always meant to be a wake up call. Stirring us out of this trance, out of this foolishness, refocusing our eyes on the Lord and on the things of eternal significance. As I said, Isaiah is a prophet, meaning he's not just speaking his words, but God's words. But when he opens the book, if you just look at the the, the first few words of the book of Isaiah, it says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. The vision, meaning Isaiah is not just speaking God's words, not just what he's heard from God, but what he has seen of God. Let me me try to explain what I mean. Do you remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6? Elisha and his servant are there. They've gone to sleep for the night. They awake, the servant awakes, and he looks out and he sees the Syrian army has surrounded them. There's a massive Syrian army come to get just these guys, right? And he comes to Elisha, he runs to Elisha and he says, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. He's panicked, he's upset. And Elisha says, hey, don't, don't be afraid. Elisha, the prophet, prophet, right? He says, don't be afraid. He says, there's actually more. With us than against us. And then Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened. Now, now get it for a minute. This is the role of a prophet. He speaks words to open eyes. That's ironic, isn't it? Because we would think words are meant for our ears. But the words of a prophet are to open your eyes to see what's real. And so what happened? Elisha prayed, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he may see. And he opens his eyes and he looks around. You know what he sees? He sees an army of angelic, a host of angelic horses and chariots of fire surrounding them on the mountaintops. And all of a sudden, all his fear, his panic is Squelched. It's the words, the prayer of a prophet that opened his eyes, pulled him out of a trance of this world into the real reality. What is real, eternally real. 
This is the work of Isaiah. It's to speak words of God to open the eyes of those of us who are lulled to sleep by the world that we live in. All that to say, we need our eyes opened. Amen? Amen. I, I don't know if we know that. I don't know if we're convinced, but we need the words of God. We need it. Stand with me, if you will. We're going to look from Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah 53. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to move quickly today, so hang with me, okay? This is the word of the Lord. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and been, become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds and before my eyes cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we need a wake up call. Stir us out of the fog of this world and give us true sight of the true king. Awaken us to your judgment for our sin. And bring us to rely on your hope. The Savior King Jesus. We ask this now for your glory and our good in Jesus name. Amen. Can be seated. What I'd like to do this morning, um, as best I can, is really preach three sermons as best and quickly as I can. So from chapter one, I think the Lord wants to say to us, open your eyes, open your eyes. In the first few verses, there's grief in the heart of God. He says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And then verse three, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. The first thing the Lord wants us to hear is you don't know your God. Isaiah speaking to the people of Judah, the southern um, kingdom, to the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And he's preaching to them. He's saying, you you are living in a way that shows you don't know God. You don't know who it is who has brought you this far. You do not know your God. The Lord is affirming that to be true. The ox knows its owner. The donkey knows where it lays down. But Israel has no clue. You don't know your God. Secondly, Isaiah says in verses four through 11. You are not who you think you are. You're not who you think you are. He begins verse four by saying, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. This is a wake up call, if nothing else. These are the people who would have said, we have Abraham for our father. We're wonderful. And God says to them, you sinful nation. This is an open your eyes, wake up call kind of moment. You're not who you think you are. He goes on to say, you are rebellious and religious. Spend several verses talking about their sinful rebellion against God. And then he says, and then you have the audacity to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices to me. You lift your hands in worship and you pray. I'm sickened by that. This is from the Lord. Look at verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. No more incense. It's an abomination to me. Your new moon, your Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
You're not who you think you are. You're only fooling yourself is what God is saying. You're only fooling yourself. You play your religious games, but you are a rebellious people. This is the word of the Lord to his people. So thirdly, he says to them, stop playing games. Open your eyes. Stop playing games. Don't don't bring your ridiculous offerings to me as if that changes you. These are tough words, right? These are hard words and they're meant for a reason. God is saying to his people, wake up. And then fourthly, he says. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And we find here embedded in this proclamation of judgment. This is what this is. A proclamation of judgment, a wake up call. Embedded within it is hope. There's hope for your sin stained life. Now listen. This is a different message of the gospel than most of us are aware of. Most of us skip all of the first 17 verses. We jump straight to verse 18. And all we want to say is there's hope for your sin-saving life. But the truth is, we don't even want the hope unless we know how desperately in need of it we are. So Isaiah is preaching to this people to say, wake up, open your eyes. You're not the people of God that you need to be. Then he gives a hopeful conclusion. There's hope for your sin-stained life. Now, all of this is an essential message that sort of bleeds throughout the whole book. The reason I chose this chapter to open up with is because this is the whole book, essentially. Isaiah is constantly preaching judgment, and then he plants in these seeds of hope on the back end. It's a constant Refrain of his message all through his 50 year ministry. Judgment of God, a call to repent, a promise of hope. That's what the book of Isaiah is about. He functions a bit like a prophetic doctor, if you will. How does a doctor work? There's, a, there's at least one in the house. There might be more than that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize really quickly what a doctor does. Here it is. Diagnosis the problem, Right? If your doctor looks at you and you have cancer and all he says to you is, I think you got a cough. Good doctor? No. You need to hear 16 verses of your sickness, right? Before you're willing to press into the second thing a doctor does, which is he prescribes a remedy. There is a remedy to your sin sickness. His name is Jesus. But you won't want him unless I've given you several verses of why you're so sick and desperately in need of him. Judgment, right? So a good prophetic doctor, Isaiah, prescribes the remedy. Then he comes on the backside of that and a good doctor will warn you and predict what will happen if you don't take the remedy. Here's your medicine. You don't take your medicine. It's going to be bad for you. 
Listen, if you don't stop eating four cakes and little Debbies every night, you're, you're going to die. A good doctor will give you warnings like, if you don't stop drinking, your liver can't handle it. You don't stop smoking, your lungs can't handle it. If you don't, then blank. There's this prescriptive warning that is right. Isaiah is full of that. He's constantly warning, if you don't come to God, you're doomed. It's truth. And then the last thing a good prophetic doctor does is he promises hope for any who will come, right? If you will stop drinking, your body may recover. If you will stop eating all the little Debbies, you won't be so fat, right? Or whatever it is. There's, there's truth and there's hope. There's something out there. Change is possible. And here, Isaiah plants it right here in chapter one. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We need this. Right? Isaiah's own call to preach. This message actually came through the very same sequence in his own life. Will you look with me at chapter six? We are on to sermon two. In chapter six, I believe the Lord is saying to us through this sort of narrative vision that Isaiah experienced, he's saying to us, see him high and lifted up. So the first bit was open your eyes. The second bit is see him for who he is, right? In Isaiah chapter six, look at what happens uh, I won't make you stand. I'll just read it quickly, though, if you will. Read with me. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, pause right there. King Uzziah was a great king in the land. There weren't many of them, but King Uzziah was a good king. He reigned for a long time. He did a lot of good things. And when King Uzziah died, there was a lot of anxiety like, oh, no, who's coming into his place? And in the moment of that void, that vacuum, that need for leadership, this is the vision that God gives to Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each, these are angels, with six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. What a powerful vision that Isaiah is given. And when he opens his book, this is his goal. His goal in, in beginning this, this book, this writing, his preaching, all of his ministry, his goal is this, that you would not just open your eyes, but turn your face away from the TV land and into the real reality that there is a God seated high on his throne. 
He is high and lifted up. And until you see him, you'll be in a trance of this world's stupidness. But Isaiah is brought out of the foolishness of this world by looking at the king on his throne. And so ironically, what we saw in chapter one finds an inverse in chapter six. Isaiah said to the people, remember, he said, you don't know God. It's in this moment that Isaiah sees God in a glorious splendor. He's given a vision of God on his throne. Isaiah needed to know his own God, right? What does he see about him? Maybe you won't write this in the margin. Here's what he sees about our God. He sees that he's king. Where's he seated? What's he, what's he sitting on? Tell me. The throne. The throne. That's where kings sit. He's king. What else does he see? He's worshipped. All around him are these angelic beings that are scary looking, right? Six wings. There's these flaming looking Floating, hovering beings that seem to be massive. Their voices cause a thunder. But what are those things doing? They're not the object of worship. What are they doing? They're worshiping the king, aren't they? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? This being that's so scary is worshiping that king. He's worshiped. He is holy. As they declare it, there is none like our God. Holy, holy, holy. He is powerful. The train of his robe fills the temple, right? At the voice of these angels, the place shakes, smoke fills the room. There's power in his presence. And having seen all of this, this clear vision of his God Now Isaiah has a clear vision of himself. He sees himself clearly. How does Isaiah respond to seeing his God? Is he like, man, you're really cool. No, there's this thing that turns inward. I don't deserve to be here, right? Woe is me. For I am a man, I am unclean, I'm lost, I'm unclean, I'm a man of unclean. You almost see him cowering at the presence of this God. And it's the right response. If you think too highly of yourself, it's because you think too lowly of God. The only way to clear the fog on the mirror is to see the greatness of God. When you behold God like this, it humbles you. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, that is Satan, the God, lowercase g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's doing everything he can to keep you from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Anything he can do, whether it be suffering like with Job or incredible prosperity like with Solomon. Whatever the enemy can do to blind you, from looking up and seeing God high, high and lifted up. Isaiah saw himself clearly. What did he do? He confessed his sinfulness. 
He confessed his sinfulness and acknowledged the sin of his own people. Woe is me. I am unclean. My people, we are unclean. We do not deserve this God. And then, miraculously and gloriously, Isaiah was cleansed by this holy God. And here we get glimpses of the good news of the gospel, right? Uh, In this story right here, you see from the altar, from the place of sacrifice, a hot coal was brought to touch his sinful mouth. That was what he confessed. I'm a man of unclean lips. And so a hot coal is brought to touch his mouth. The angel declares, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This is amazing. And it's a glimpse of the gospel. What what should have seared him, right? Hot, burning, live coal should have seared his lips. Instead, it saved him. The altar of God's judgment for sin had become a place of mercy for this sinner. Instead of hurting him, it healed him. His guilt is removed. His, His sin stained Life has been made clean. This is a shadow of the gospel. And it was in this experience with the Lord that Isaiah took up the mission to speak the same message, right? Judgment for sin and hope in a savior for the rest of his ministry. He preached, as I said, to the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, especially. He preached through four kings. The life of Isaiah um, was not cut short, but... History has it that the last king who came into uh, office was Manasseh. And Isaiah's message, as most prophets could attest, was not popular. And the last king that came in actually had Isaiah sawn in two. Hebrews 11 records the story as it uh, chronicles the men of faith. And it says, and some of you were sawn in two. Most scholars believe that was a reference to Isaiah. But his message was this. Wake up. Lift your eyes. See him high and lifted up. Right. And thirdly. If Isaiah is preaching hope of salvation for sinners, what is the hope? What is the hope of salvation from the book of Isaiah? I guess we should say not what, but who, who. And so the third message I wanted to bring to us is this. Behold, Christ, our Savior King, Christ, the Savior King. Would you uh, grab your Bibles? You're going to need it as we flip some pages together. Okay, I want you to see. That all through Isaiah's ministry, he's proclaiming Jesus, a coming Jesus. 700 years before Christ, he begins to proclaim who this Messiah will be. What will be the sign of his coming? So the first truth, and there are many, many we won't cover, but I wanted to cover a few that I think are very significant. The first one he says is this. This Messiah, the hope of salvation, will be the son of a virgin. It's pretty remarkable that 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah prophesies with very clear words that this Messiah will be the baby, a son born to a virgin girl. In Isaiah 7, 
verses 14 through 16. Look at them with me. We're going to read as quickly as we can. I want you to see this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name. What? Emmanuel. What does that mean? Anybody know? God with us. Now, Isaiah is giving a prophecy to King Ahaz at the time. And King Ahaz, they were about to go into battle. And he's like, how do I know we're going to win? And Isaiah says, well, let me tell you, um, there's a son coming. He'll be born of a virgin and he will be God with us. God with us. And it proved to be a success that the presence of the Lord was with Ahaz for that particular battle. There was a near fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But as most of his prophecies are, there's a near fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. And what was the ultimate fulfillment of his prophecy? Who was the virgin birth and the son of a virgin? Who was he? Jesus. That's right. Ultimately, the hope of salvation for sinners would come through the child born to the Virgin Mary and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. This child, Isaiah gives us more detail about him in chapter nine. So if you will flip the page in chapter nine, verse six, he says, for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given. A child born, a son given. The significance here is on these two words, born and given. What do those words mean? Well, Jesus was born, right, of a woman. He came as a baby, a human, real life, crying, screaming, needs diapers changed, baby. Real human. But now what does he mean when he says a child is born and a son is given? That's something different, isn't it? Think about it this way. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. So we not only have a human baby boy who's coming. We actually have a divine son of God who is not just being born, but who came. He was sent. He was given by God. Jesus was born fully human to bear the weight of sinful humanity, but he was sent by the father to save sinful humanity. He's fully human, fully God. And Isaiah is telling us who he is that's coming to save us. It's only Jesus. What else do we find out about him? This is powerful. Isaiah says he is the defeater of death. The defeater of death. Look at Isaiah 25. Verses seven and eight. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. What a prophecy, right? He will swallow up death forever. Oh, is that is that beautiful or what? Does it remind you a little bit of what Paul wrote in first Corinthians 15? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of 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 sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has swallowed up death in his own death and resurrection. He's the defeater of death. He is, Isaiah says, Isaiah prophesies, he is the cornerstone, the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 
and 16. Look at what he says about Christ here. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand for the overwhelming scourge passes through. You will be beaten down by it. Goes on to talk about Christ as our cornerstone. Am I reading the wrong verse? Yes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Do you see that? I'm laying a stone, a precious stone, a foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In Matthew 21, there's a similar preaching here about Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And the message is this. He is the cornerstone, the stumbling block of offense. Many will stumble on him, unable to believe, unwilling to believe, and they will stumble on him and they will be crushed by him in judgment. But those who come to him in faith, he is the cornerstone upon which they can build a secure and eternal life. Isn't this amazing? Isaiah is prophesying that you will be welcomed in or driven out based on what you do with Jesus. Here's the question. Is your life built on him, the cornerstone? Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23, Isaiah prophesies that he, this savior, this Messiah who's coming will have the name above every name Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus that he has, he has given a name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will what? Bow. And every tongue what? Confess. He is Lord. This is a prophecy 700 years before Christ. He is Lord. There is no salvation Apart from submission. We need to know this church. Because there's an epidemic of. (laughs) False belief. Especially in our culture. There's this idea that you can. Pray some magic prayer. And just go on about your life. It's garbage. You need to know the truth. You come to Christ as Savior and Lord. And Lord. And Lord. There's no leaving the last of that off of it. You get Him as Savior and Lord or you don't get Him. You are not saved just because you prayed some magic words. If your life is not lived in submission to Jesus as your Lord, He is not your Savior. You need to hear the words of God and open your eyes. Behold him as king on the throne. He's not your buddy in the back seat. Behold him as king 
It's the only way to have Christ is to have Him as King. Jesus says in the last days, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So Isaiah is saying this to you, church, wake up. Look up. Behold him as king, as glorious. Bow to him with your heart, with your will now. Better now than later. Isaiah says he is the servant that saves. The servant that saves. Some selected passages here. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. He calls him a servant who saves. This is a remarkable thing because the people always wanted their Messiah to ride in uh, on, on on a horse and to just slaughter their enemies. And the portrait Isaiah paints is, uh, is this. He is a hero who rides in to be slaughtered by the enemy. This makes no sense. And for the longest time, the people of God couldn't get it. Even at the foot of the cross, they didn't get it. If you're the king of the Jews, take yourself off that cross. Jesus says, this is the way to my throne. He's the servant who saves. Jesus goes low to cleanse sinners. He took on your sin so that you could take on his righteousness. He is the servant who saves. Even in the last days with his disciples in John 13, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus gets up and goes get water and a towel and says, let me just wash your feet, guys. A servant who saves hours after that, he'll have nails pierced through his hands, but he uses those hands to wash the feet, even of the one who betrays him. He's a servant who saves. So this is who he is, but how does Jesus save us? How does he save us? There's so much we could say here, but we don't have time. So I want to just remind you of a story in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, Philip uh, Following the lead of the Holy Spirit, he runs up beside a chariot. There's an Ethiopian there who's reading the scriptures and Philip runs up beside his chariot. He's like, hey, man, you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, well, but how can I unless somebody explain it to me? He says, well, what are you reading? And guess what he reads aloud? He reads these words like a sheep was led to the slaughter and like a lamb Led uh, before its shears was silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? From for his life is taken away from the earth. The Ethiopian looks at Philip and he says, "Who is this about? Is this about the prophet or someone else?" We read in Acts chapter eight, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture in Isaiah, he told him the good news of Jesus. They went on down the road a little ways and the man is believing, he's believing that Jesus is the lamb led to slaughter. Jesus is the one who yielded and willingly gave up his life, denied justice and gave up his life. He died for sinners. He's believing that to be true. And he looks at Philip and he says, hey, here's some water. What's preventing me from being baptized? Philip's like, nothing, brother. Let's get you in the water. And he baptizes this new believer. Why did that happen? 
It's because the word of God through the prophet of God opened the eyes of this man. He looked and beheld Christ as king in all the ways we've just talked about. Seated on his throne. And all he could say is, I got to give my life to this suffering savior king. And he was baptized into the body of Christ. So Christ is our sacrificial substitute from Isaiah 53, our sacrificial substitute. The judgment of God and the hope for sinners collide at the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? All right. Hang with me. Two more minutes. Ready? At the cross, the truly righteous, sinless one gave up his life. At the cross, the wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus. At the cross, the sacrificial lamb was slain and his pure blood was applied. Remember, was applied as the ransom for sin to all who believe. So we sum it up this way. At the cross, God's son crucified, God's wrath satisfied and God's children justified. It all happens at the cross of Jesus. It's the question that Job wrestled with in the depth of his suffering. We talked about last week. You remember this question? How can a mortal man be made right with a holy God? How can it happen? That question finds a hopeful answer from the prophet Isaiah. It only happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The only way sinners, me and you, can be saved is to have a sinless substitute. He took the judgment for our sin. He not only took your sin, but he offers to you, he gives to you the righteousness of God. It's the greatest exchange you could ever make. Jesus takes your place on the cross. You receive his right standing with the holy God. Question for you. Will you trust in the blood of the Lamb today? He willingly died for you. Will you live for him? I want to tell you, listen, don't be lulled to sleep by the noise of this world. Don't just go on scrolling your way into the foolishness of this life. Wake up. Look up. God is holy. He will judge sin with eternal suffering. Your sin. The question is, do you see him for who he is? Have you yielded your life to him? God is not fools. He sees and knows everything. The Bible says it this way. All have sinned and fall short of this holy God. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. The wages of your sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Amen. It's a hopeful message. Because it's about Jesus. We all need Jesus. Let's pray.